I'd like to invite you this morning first to sort your way through the bulletin until you find a sheet of paper that's entitled uh, Cole Community Church Covenant of Fellowship. I uh, feel compelled to say to you, take the bulletin home today and read it, but don't drop it on your toe. The burden of all of Scripture is to announce that uh, God came to seek and to save the lost. The incarnation is the greatest evidence of that fact. The Son of Man came, as he put it, to seek and to save the lost. Our Lord's coming is an indication of God's intent to get next to us, and he chose to associate with all sorts of of people, the, re- the religious, the irreligious, the pious, the impious, people who couldn't make it, and those who had it made. He did not expect them to be religious. He expected them to come just as they are. There's a concept in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that uh, is, uh, is very helpful to me in understanding the basic relationship that we have with Christ. It's this concept of table fellowship. It's the idea that our Lord came to eat and to drink with, with sinners, with all sorts of people, people just like us, and to gather them to himself. He didn't ask them to get religion before they came. He didn't ask them to clean up their act. He uh, just asked them to come as they were. But uh, there's something about sitting at at table with Jesus and listening to him talk and watching him live and observing him as he relates to people that makes us want to be like him. And as Jesus put it, if you want something very much, it'll be given to you. The other thing that I have to say about table fellowship is that we really have nothing to say about the people who sit with us at table, the person who sits right next to us uh could be any type of person. Uh, our Lord calls all sorts of people into association with him, and, and you never know who your neighbor will be. The answer to the old question, who is my brother, is the new answer, the person that sits down at, at the table with Jesus. Uh, as John Shea put it, the Roman soldier who occupies your country uh, shares your cup. Uh, the tax collector who shows up at your house on the first of the month is your brother. The harlot down the street is your sister. Now, the reason I use that analogy is because it's so helpful for me in understanding the nature of the church. The church is a table fellowship. That's what we are. We, we gather around our Lord's table. We eat and drink with him. We're taught by him. We observe him. And then we go from that place to minister to one another. As someone has said, we're just a bunch of beggars who show up at that table asking for food. It's there that our Lord feeds us, and it's there that we gather the resources to minister to one another. Now, that concept of a table or Paul's analogy of a body, an organism rather than an organization, is so much more meaningful to me than the than the normal concept of, of a church, because a church is not an organization, it's an organism. It's a fellowship around the Lord's, around the Lord's table. That's why I have always been reluctant to use the word membership. 
in this uh, in this congregation. We don't talk much about membership because it, that smacks of organization. And 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 the analogy that the New Testament uses is that of a body and members. The relationship that we have to one another is the same relationship that all the members of our body have to us. And that, for me, is a much more meaningful concept. For the last uh, few months, your elders have been going through our constitution and bylaws and reworking our concept of membership. And we've come up with something that we think is a lot more meaningful. It's this covenant of fellowship. And before we launch into our new series of studies in 1 Thessalonians next Sunday, we wanted to go through this covenant with you because we think it will help you to understand what it means to be a part of this of this fellowship, of this body. Uh, a few years ago, we suddenly realized that some of us on the Board of Elders weren't members of this church. And so... Uh, <laughs> and so uh, we... Uh, real quick had to make them members, which gives you some idea of how seriously we took the concept of membership. But we take very seriously the concept of being members of Christ's body. Uh, anyone who belongs to Christ belongs to this body. If you're a member of Christ's body, you're a member of this local manifestation of Christ's body. So even though you haven't signed anything, you're still a member in that sense. But some people want to identify more closely. And some people want to know what it means to be a member of this local body of, of believers. And that's why we have drawn up this covenant of fellowship. Now I'd like to read it uh, for you and then talk about the elements of the covenant. Having submitted to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and taking the scriptures as my rule of faith and practice, I desire to enter into a covenant of fellowship with this body of believers. I have read the Constitution, bylaws, and doctrinal statement and agree with them. A copy of the Constitution and bylaws and our doctrinal statement uh, can be found in the rack in the back of the auditorium if you'd like to pick up that document. I further covenant to walk with other members of this body in Christian love, caring for them, watching over them, praying for them, and bearing their burdens and sorrows. To be thoughtful, courteous, patient, kind to others, tender-hearted, forgiving others, just as God has forgiven me. To help guard the purity and integrity of this body by seeking to restore those who sin. To contribute, as I have purposed in my heart, to the financial support of the church, the relief of the needy, and the evangelism of all people. To willingly submit to the elders and others who lead me as those who watch over my soul. To endeavor by faith to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ to use my spiritual gifts in a place of ministry within this body of believers, and to seek to witness to my non-Christian friends of Christ's love for them. Now, this is what we think entails being a member of, of this body. Now, I'd like to, uh, for you to turn with me to Galatians 5, because I want to root as many of my comments as I can in this passage of Scripture. I agree with John R. W. Stott. I preach one topical sermon each year and then immediately thereafter repent. Uh, I prefer to do exposition of scripture because our goal here on Sunday morning is simply to say again what the apostles and the prophets have said. And it's, you're less likely to fall into, uh, into heresy if you simply say again what the scriptures say. But uh, uh, we have a number of passages to document these statements 
and I will need to turn to some others, but I thought that uh, the Galatians 5 and 6 uh, 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 text would be most helpful for us this morning. Paul's concern is the to establish our liberty in Christ. Uh, in our Lord, the oughts and musts and shoulds of the law have all been set aside. We do not come to the Lord through circumcision or baptism or good works or through cleaning up our act or trying to do a better job of living. We come to the Lord just as we are. And that's Paul's uh, point in chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've been fret, set free from the tenets and the demands of the law. But, Paul says in verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another uh, serve one another in love. We have not been set free from the law to serve ourselves. We've been set free to care for one another. The entire law, Paul continues, is summed up in a single statement, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. A little humor there. The uh, gingham dog and the calico cat devouring one another. And this is the story, the sad story of so many churches. A great deal of gossip and criticism, people hurting each other, uh, people uh, abusing the freedom that they have in Christ. We do not want this to be true of us. We want it said of us that we really do care about each other. This is a place where a fellow or a girl knows that he or she is loved. You can come here and you can cry. You can let down your hair. You can express your needs. You can be yourself. And someone will care for you. Now, it's very difficult to do this in a large congregation. Uh, it, it, it Almost of necessity has to be done in small groups. And that's why we would encourage you this year to get into a growth group, to get into one of the women's studies, one of the men's studies, some small group, some of the groups within the various age groups of the church that will minister to your uh, to your needs. Because that is the place where we can, in love, serve one another. Uh, it is almost impossible for us to do that in this larger congregation. It's easy for you to get lost. We do not know what your needs are. And if we don't know what your needs are, then we cannot care for you. And so it's, uh, it's very important that you get into one of these, uh, these small groups. Now, the question uh, uh, comes, how in the world can we do that? If our natural tendency is to care for ourselves and serve ourselves, how can we begin to minister to one another? Paul tells us in verse 16, I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Literally, walk in the spirit. That's the more familiar translation of that phrase. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. There's a conflict that we all feel when we try to turn from our own interests to meet the needs of others. It is not easy to do so. These two are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now, uh, one of the emphases that we make here constantly is, uh, is dependence upon the indwelling life of Christ. We cannot change ourselves very much apart from his activity. 
There are a lot of, of uh, expressions in Scripture that tell us what we must do. We must abide in Christ. We must be filled with the Spirit. We must operate according to the law of the liberty in Christ, uh, law of liberty, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, we must walk in the Spirit. We must depend upon Christ. All of these phrases say essentially the same thing. It does not depend upon us. It depends upon Him. He has to change us. And uh, to return again to our analogy of table talk or table fellowship, it's listening to our Lord's Word, and it's watching Him, and it's depending upon Him, waiting upon Him through the whole process of delay and time that He begins to change us into, uh, into His likeness. We cannot change ourselves. It is only as we walk in the Spirit. When you become a Christian, it's not that uh, Christ is over here and we grit our teeth and clench our jaw and set our fists and decide that we're going to do it. We simply depend upon him to change us. That's what Paul means by walking in the Spirit. That's how we grow in grace. Now, the alternative to growth in grace is spelled out for us in verse 19. The acts of the flesh. And by flesh, Paul means unaided, our unaided humanity. He's referring to what we are apart from the indwelling spirit of Christ. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, that's our word fornication, the big word for all forms of illicit sexual relationships. Impurity or defilement, the word comes from a root that means dirt. And debauchery. Idolatry, that is centering on anything other than God. Witchcraft. Hatred which is a, a, a sort of settled malice, um, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, that is uncontrolled anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, dividing up into various parties, our kind and everyone else, factions, prejudice, sexism, racism, uh, elitism, uh, envy, that is, resenting the, the good fortune of others, drunkenness, orgies, or partying, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live in this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is not saying that if a Christian slips into one of these sins, he is disqualified for the kingdom of heaven. He loses his or her salvation. Paul is not saying that. He's saying that if we can live like this, if we can justify a fornicatious lifestyle, if we can justify our envy or jealousy or malice or rage or an unforgiving spirit or any of these manifestations of the flesh, then we are not Christians. Because Christians ought to know better and they ought to behave better because they have within them the indwelling life of, of Christ. But, he says, uh, these characteristics do not need to appear in our life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, or tranquility, patience. We have a long fuse. Kindness. Uh, mellow is, is the word in New Testament Greek. It's, it's the word that's used in classical Greek for fine wine. Goodness, that is a useful kind of goodness. It's good for something rather than good for nothing. Uh, faithfulness or reliability, gentleness, the word is non-defensiveness, it has the idea of meekness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. In other words, who can say anything bad about someone who manifests these characteristics? 
people in the world look at the church and they do not, sometimes they do not like what they see. They see a lot of uptightness. They see a lot of narrowness and bitterness and criticism and unloving uh, attitudes toward those in the world. And they see a lot of bickering and harshness within the church. Is it any wonder that they don't want any part of us? But who can say anything good about someone who is gentle and tranquil and strong? Who has all of these, uh, these qualities? And these are the qualities that are ours as we grow in the Spirit. As we sit at the table with Jesus and as we listen to his word and as we, we ask him to make these qualities a reality in our life, then we become the kind of winsome Christians that draw others to Christ. Now, uh, Paul goes on to the corporate life of the church. In these verses, uh, he has been centering on our personal walk with God. In verse 25, he turns to the corporate life of the body. Uh, Since we live by the Spirit, that is, individually, let us keep in step by the Spirit. It's a military term. It means to walk uh, walk in step, stay in rank and file. Uh, I think I mentioned once to the men, I I, uh, had a wonderful illustration of this of the use of this word a number of years ago. I was in Greece with a friend, and we happened by a school, and we saw a PE teacher out in the the, uh, uh, playground. It looked like any PE teacher I've ever seen here in the States had on a jogging suit and a whistle around her neck and a pair of Adidas on. And uh, she stood in the middle of, the children were running all over the field, and she stood in the middle of the field and blew a blast on her whistle, and she said, sticky they, sticky they, which is this, this verb that, that's used here. And the little children stopped what they were doing and ran all the way across the classroom and lined up and began to march into the, into the classroom in step. No uh, jostling, no pushing to get ahead, just uh, walking together in rank and file. And I nudged the fellows with me, and I said, that's the, Paul, that's the word that Paul used in Galatians 5 when he said, walk in step with one another. He's turning now, you see, to the life of the church and the way we ought to relate to one another. Let's not become proud, he said, because it's pride that separates us from one another. As the proverb puts it, only by pride comes contention. Anytime there is division and dissension, someone is being proud. And so Paul says, let us not become proud, provoking and envying each other. I suppose we provoke those uh, over whom we seem superior, and we envy those that we feel inferior to. Now he begins to spell out what it means to keep in step or walk together by the Spirit. Brothers, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught, the word is ensnared, trapped in some sin. You see, that's what sin does to us. It, it entraps us. Uh, Paul describes those who are caught in sin as those who have been captured by Satan to do his will. Uh, The book of Hebrews refers to the hardness of heart that comes as a result of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. We think we can temporize with it. We think we can sin a little bit and get away with it. We can kind of skirt around the edges and not get burned. But it's like a whirlpool. We get pulled into the vortex and and sucked under by the the sin. And and after a while, we are mastered by it. And, uh, And so Paul says, if you see someone caught in that whirlpool, he's ensnared in sin. He's fallen out of rank, actually, is the word that he uses. Uh, 
anyone guilty of the things above, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, hatred, discord, jealousy, selfish ambition, any of those sins caught in them, not falling into them and then repenting of them, but rather entrapped, ensnared by them. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, by those who are spiritual, he's not referring to some elite group within the church. He's referring to those who are walking in the Spirit, those who are living in dependence upon the Spirit of Christ. It is not the elders or the pastors or the leaders of the church who are called upon to take this action. It's every member of the body. If you see a brother or sister who is ensnared in sin, uh, who's being dragged under by it, what is the loving thing to do? To go to them and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. The word that's, uh, that Paul uses for restore here is the word that, that is used in the Gospels of the disciples mending their nets, setting in order something that had been torn and was in disrepair. It's also used in classical Greek for uh, setting bones. You, know, you don't grab the ends of the bones and ram them together. It's done gently and deftly and with a great deal of love and, and care for the individual. But it has to be done because of the deceitfulness of sin. We don't always see what we're doing. We don't see our sin, and we don't see the effect of our sin, and so we need a brother or sister to step into our life and restore us gently. Gently. That's the key. Not with censure or criticism or self-righteousness, but uh, gently. And not to gossip about them. My goodness, we all, I, I fall into that one, and I know you do too. Don't try to kid me. I know you do, because I do. And uh, it's something we've got to deal with. There's nothing like gossip to, to tear a church to pieces. So when we see a brother or a sister who's struggling in some sin, the thing to do is to go and very gently uh, help them to see the effect of, of their sin and to deal with it. Uh, the best illustration of this principle is our Lord himself in the upper room as his final act, knowing, as John put it, what authority he had, that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. You would expect John to say he stood and uh, delivered the sermon in the upper room or something of that sort. No, he, he took off his outer garments and he tied a towel around his waist. He was garbed as a servant and he crawled around on his hands and knees and he began to wash the dirty feet of his disciples and he came to Peter. Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. He used a, used a double negative. There's no way you're going to touch my feet. And uh, Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter said, well, wash me all over. And Jesus said, you don't need to be washed all over. You're clean. I just need to wash your feet. Then he, after he completed the task, He's, he arose, took off the uh, garb of a serpent, servant, and he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? If I, your teacher and Lord, washed your feet, you ought, you ought to wash one another's feet. Well, there are some churches that practice the rite of foot washing, and that's not a bad practice. We should try that sometime. But more important than the rite is the reality. We should wash one another's feet. We are, those of us that, that have put our faith in Christ have been cleansed all over. We've been washed. But as we walk through the world, our feet get defiled, they get dirty, and we need someone to wash our feet. You know, not plunge them into scalding water or put them into ice cold water, but, but gently and lovingly to, to wash our feet and, and set things right in our life. We need that. We all need it. I need it. 
You need it. And this is something we must do for one another. Uh, then, number two. Now, this uh, that idea is caught up under the third statement in the covenant of fellowship to help guard the purity and integrity of this body by seeking to restore those who are in sin. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, of course, is the law of love. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. It's pride that keeps us from bearing one another's burdens. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. There's a bit of irony there. Uh, Paul is saying, if you think uh, you're something, just lay your life down alongside the perfect life of our Lord. You'll see how far short you fall. Don't think of yourself as too good to help someone else. Don't think of yourself as not having that problem. You see, that's one of the reasons we find it difficult to bear somebody else's burdens. Because we look at their failures and we say, I'd never, I'd never collapse under that load. And so we are inclined to be critical rather than caring. But uh, Paul says, bear one of those burdens. You have your own pack. He said, it's interesting. The word he uses, the last uh, word in verse 5, each one should carry his own load. That word is the word for a, a Roman soldier's field pack, the little pack that everyone had to carry. The word uh, that's used in verse 2, carry each other's burdens. That word burden is the word for a crushing load, a load that you cannot carry by yourself. I saw a wonderful illustration of this in uh, Good News for Modern Man, if any of you have that translation of, of the New Testament. It's a series of stick figures at the top of Galatians 6. And the first, it's a line of uh, people. And the first person in the line has a heavy sack over his shoulder. And the person behind him also has a heavy sack. But he's reaching forward and lifting the sack in front of him. And uh, the person behind him is lifting his sack so that, that they are bearing one another's burdens. And that's the picture which Paul has given us here. To walk with other members of this body in Christian love, caring for them, watching over them, praying for them, and bearing their burdens and sorrows. Our burdens are so much easier to bear when we have someone with whom we can share them. Then verse 6. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Uh, put quite literally, that means give money to your teachers. <laughs> it does, really. I'm not joking. Now, uh, don't come up here and slip me a $5 bill. The elders of this church take very good care of me. I'm paid far more than I'm worth. But uh, in Paul's day, there were itinerating pastors and teachers and evangelists who went from one place to the next. John says in his little book, we ought to support such of these because they went everywhere for the cause of Christ. We ought to support the ministries that ministered us. That's what Paul is saying. Now, I just want to put it as bluntly as I can. If this ministry is ministered to you, then it's your responsibility as a member of this body to help support the ministries of this church. We as elders are trying to do what do the things that really count. We are not spending a lot of money on buildings and and things that will not endure. We want to we want to lay up treasure in heaven. That's our concern. 
And we believe that the things that we are doing are things that are worth supporting. Now, if you question that, please come and talk to us about these, uh, these projects. We, we're open to that sort of thing. But to the best of our ability, we're trying to pursue those things that will build this body, will reach this community, and will reach out to the entire world. As you know, we're trying to recruit and train and send missionaries all around the world from this, from this body. And God is, has made that possible for us. But there is a very heavy financial load on this congregation. Right now, our budget, just for the general, the general budget of this church is over three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, over half of that goes into people to support people. Very, very little of it goes into the building or into, uh, again, projects that uh, will not endure. We want to invest in people. But it is a great deal of money. But on the other hand, if you stop and think about it, our, our budget, our weekly budget is uh, almost $13,000. That's $10 per person per week. That's all it is. If we share that load equally, $10 per person per week. Uh, I was looking at the statesman this last, or a couple of weeks ago, about all the new ski equipment, you know, and it struck me that I have a friend who refers to what he calls the Barbie doll law. You can't have just the basic thing. There are always other other accessories that you have to buy. And, and you know, you, my goodness, when you pay $500 or $600 for a pair of skis now and three or 400 for a pair of boots, and, you know, you don't any longer just strap on a pair of $75 skis and go down the hill. You've got to have those glow twinky pants and all the rest of it. And, <laughs> You know, I, I got to adding up figures. Oh, my goodness, if I took up skiing, I'd have to spend a couple of thousand dollars. And in addition to that, I've got to, I've got to pay for the lift tickets and so forth. That's a lot of money. And, and we will very quickly spend a couple of hundred dollars uh, to buy a new snowmobile or new fishing equipment or whatever. Never think twice about it, and all that stuff's going to burn up someday. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, you know, we, we, we find it very difficult to put more than $10 a week in, in the offering plate. The parallel passage, the passage that we use to document this principle is 2 Corinthians 9-7, where Paul says, each person, each person, as you have purposed in your heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, by purposing, I think, translated in today's economy, that means put it in your budget. Most of us just give emotionally. You know, the plate comes by and we toss some money in. I think what Paul is talking about is making a disciplined decision. It doesn't have to be this ministry, but a disciplined decision to give to ministries that are fruitful and productive. Because in that way we're storing up treasure in heaven. All the stuff that we buy on this earth is going to burn up on these days. The only commodity that endures is the stuff we're sending up into heaven. And that's people. That's the only eternal element on, on the face of this, this earth. So I, I, would, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to seriously think through your giving pattern. Just think of what would happen if everyone in this congregation decided to give $20 a week instead of $10. That would mean a million and a half dollars that could go into some kind of ministry touching this community or uh, the world outside.
So I, I, I think all of us need to do some thinking along those lines. We don't talk much about money. I am so uh, leery of the stereotypes of pastors, you know, who always have their hand out and who are begging for money that we've probably gone the other way. We don't talk about money ever. But uh, I think, uh, you know, the scriptures face this issue and we need to face it and we need to face our own personal responsibility. Let's look now at the covenant of fellowship in the few moments that we have left. Uh, two, three, four, five, the fifth element, to willingly submit to the elders and others who lead me as those who watch over my soul. Uh, turn to Hebrews 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 13. Uh, if you're new to the New Testament, We've been in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. So it's to the right. Hebrews thirteen, verse seven. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Reflect upon the outcome of their of their way of life and imitate their faith. Leaders ought to be examples. Leaders ought, ought to do two things. They ought to teach you the word and they ought to exemplify it. Verse 17, obey, literally, listen to your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. See, they are under authority too. They cannot run amok. They, uh, they, they, they have to submit to an authority. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Who wants a bunch of joyless, burdened leaders? Uh, I uh, can honestly say that, that one of the real joys in working in this church is the responsiveness of people in this congregation. It's always my delight when I talk to other pastors to share with them how how willingly you have in the past submitted to the leadership of, of the elders. I would I would say this it must be a responsible submission. Our responsibilities as elders is not to dictate or demand, it's to declare. Our we must be subject to the word and we must announce that word to you. That's the way the writer of Hebrews seems to be arguing. Uh remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. What's a, what authority? The, the authority of their office? No. No, it's the authority of their submission to the word. If these men are submissive to, word, uh, to God's word, we can presume that they're moving along in the right direction and we could submit to them. But, but that submission needs to be responsible. And if you think you're, the elders of this church are not obedient to scripture, then you come to us and talk to us about it. Uh, Paul said of the Bereans, the people that lived in Berea, which was a little city in in Greece, uh, southern part of Macedonia. He said, the, the Bereans were more noble, or pardon me, as Luke had said this, the Bereans were more noble than those that were in Thessalonica because they received the word uh, uh, with readiness and tried to determine if these things were so. What things? The things that the Apostle Paul taught them. Paul came to Berea and he taught the word and the people in that congregation said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. Are you sure that's what the scriptures say? 
And uh, they didn't take his teaching lying down. They went back to the Old Testament and they demanded that he document his preaching from Scripture. And he was able to do so. And, and Luke commends them. He commends them because they, they had that responsible attitude toward, toward their leadership. Our authority is the authority of, of the Lord, our Lord in, in our life. As Jesus put it, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. As you know, uh, this this church operates under elder rule. Uh, I am senior pastor only because I'm probably the oldest guy around. Uh, but I don't have any more authority than any of the other elders do. We operate as brothers in a position of leadership. We try to listen to each other and correct each other and counter each other. It's that check and balance system that that enables us to, I believe, follow the Lord uh, and follow his word uh, correctly. And uh, what we want to, to be as elders for you is an example of the believer. We wanna, we're going to fail, but the intent of our heart is to set the pace for you and to teach you the scriptures and to follow the Lord ourselves so we can give the direction to this church that our Lord has asked us to give. He is the head of this church. He is the chief shepherd, the head pastor in that sense. Now the next uh, statement in the covenant of fellowship is the next to the last, to use my spiritual gifts in a place of ministry within this body of believers. Uh, Turn to 1 Peter 4.10, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Keep turning to the right. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Uh, he's referring either to the second coming of Christ or our death. Any way we look at life, the end of all things is near. Now, if your doctor announced to you that you have six months to live, what would be the priorities in life? What would, what would be the most important thing for you to do, Peter tells us? You should have a cool head for prayer. Therefore, be discerning, be clear-minded, be sane. It's an antonym for insane. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-control, that is, discipline for the purpose of prayer. So give yourself to prayer. That's the first priority. The second is love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The third is offer hospitality to one another without complaining. In those days, uh, the inns were either brothels or they were places where there were drunken brawls and, and it was very difficult to find a, a place to stay. And so as Christians would go from place to place, they would be offered the hospitality of some Christian's home. Peter says, offer that hospitality without complaining, which would suggest that it's not often easy to be hospitable. It will cost us. And then finally, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So uh, since the end is near, since time is short, what are the priorities? Keep a cool head for prayer, a warm heart for one another, an open home, and willful, willingly use uh, your gifts, a willful, a willing spirit.
Now, uh, this concept of spiritual gifts may be new to some of you. By a spiritual gift, we're not talking about the ability to run fast and jump high and throw hard and sing well and those sorts of things. Those are natural gifts. We're rather talking about a divinely given capacity to serve the needs of the body. Every person here who belongs to Christ has a spiritual gift. No one was behind the door when the spiritual gifts were passed out. You have at least one and perhaps more of these God-given capacities to serve. And they tend to divide themselves into two categories, serving and speaking. You notice how Peter puts it? If you speak, do it as one who speaks the very words of God. Be an expositor of the word of God. If anyone serves, do it with the strength God provides. Both of those categories are equally important. One is not superior to the other. Some speak, that is, they teach, they counsel, they have a word of wisdom. Uh, their proclamation is verbal. Others serve. They are more active and physical. These are the people that uh, take in meals for people that uh, are sick. They, uh, when they go out to cut wood for themselves, they cut wood for the widows in the church. These are people who are involved in administration of the church who serve the more mundane needs of the body, but nevertheless have just as much spiritual influence as those who, those who speak. Everyone has a gift. question is, are you using it? Are you using it? They must be used for the sake of the body. Get involved. Get involved. A friend of mine a couple of weeks ago was commenting on Isaiah's statement, our sins are like scarlet, and he said, it occurred to me one day that my sins are not like scarlet, my sins are all gray. Unlike uh, Luther, who said, sin boldly, I'm a miserable sinner, he said. My sin is laziness. It's sloth. Uh, it's, it's indifference to the needs of others. And that must not be true of us. We must give ourselves in service to one another. So use your spiritual gift. And then finally, to seek to witness to my non-Christian friends of Christ's love for them. This is where most of us panic. Peter has a good word. It occurred to me uh, uh, earlier uh, today that uh, there's really no need to even go to Acts 1.8 for this concept. Just above chapter 4 and chapter 3, there's a wonderful analogy of of salvation being like an ark. He paints a picture of uh, Noah's ark. And Noah and, and his family got into the ark, and they were saved passing through water, is the way Peter puts it. As they went through the waters of judgment, they were saved in the ark. And uh, it occurs to me that uh, our job is to invite people to get into the ark with us. Instead of watching non-Christians treading water, we can say, come get into the ark. This is where salvation is found. That's, that's all evangelism is. It's one beggar telling another beggar where he or she can go to find bread. It's inviting people to Jesus' table. So I've said over and over again, there are really only two elements in evangelism. One is befriending people, and the other is imparting the truth. Anybody can make a friend. All you have to do is be friendly. And the question I have to ask myself and I ask you is, how many friends do you have who are non-Christians? I mean real friends, people that you really care about. You don't censure them. You're not critical of them. 
You just love them as they are because that's the way God loves them. Their sin is their sin of unbelief, as Jesus put it. When the spirit of truth comes, he will convince the world of sin. What sin? The sin that the, of not believing on me. That's the only sin of which they're guilty in God's eyes right now. And uh, so we don't need to sit in judgment on them. We can just love them and invite them to come with us and sit at the Lord's table and listen to him. And, and once we've made a friend out of them, we can impart the truth that God has given to us. That's all we have to do is tell people what God is telling us. Nothing more, nothing less. You don't have to have an answer to every theological question. You don't have to know how to meet every objection. You just, just tell them what you're learning at, at the table and share it with them. That's what witness is. Now, these are the elements of our covenant of fellowship. And in conclusion, what I would like to do is simply read through this covenant again. And I would like to ask you this week to pray about committing yourself to this body of believers. As I said before, some of you are very much committed to this body. Others are feeling that you don't know where to, where to grab on. This thing is revolving and you, you don't know where the handles are. And uh, you want to be a part. Well, this, this is the way to be a part. And we would like for you to take this sheet home, read through it prayerfully, carefully, think through the implications of becoming a member of, of this body of believers and then, if this represents your commitment to this body to place your signature at the bottom and either mail it in or drop it in the, in the offering plate next week. As I said before, the Constitution and the bylaws and the doctrinal statement are in a document in the uh, rack in the back of the auditorium. Now, let's, let's read through this covenant. Having Submitted to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You see, that submission to Christ makes you a member of his body. And taking the scriptures as my rule of faith and practice. What Jesus, the apostles, and prophets have said, we take to be truth in our rule of faith and practice. I desire to enter into a covenant of fellowship with this body of believers. I have read the Constitution, bylaws, and doctrinal statement and agree with them. I further covenant to walk with other members of this body in Christian love, caring for them, watching over them, praying for them, bearing their burdens and sorrows, to be thoughtful, courteous, patient, kind to others, tender-hearted, forgiving others, just as God has forgiven me, to help guard the purity and integrity of this body by seeking to restore those who sin, to contribute, as I have purposed in my heart, to the financial support of the church, the relief of the needy, and the evangelism of all people, to willingly submit to the elders and those who lead me as those who watch over my soul, to endeavor by faith to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, to use my spiritual gifts in a place of ministry within this body of believers, and to seek to witness to my non-Christian friends of Christ's love for them. Will you pray with me? Lord, as your word tells us, you purchase this church with the cost of your own blood. And, and we must confess that sometimes we do not take the responsibility of being a part of this body with, with a due sense of, of seriousness. We realize that this church was very costly to you, that you love it deeply, that you gave yourself for it. 
we want to commit ourselves in the same way to to this body of believers and to the body of Christians all around the world who love you and acknowledge you as Lord. So much in the world tugs at us. There's so many other interests that distract us. There's so many things that, from an eternal standpoint, will never endure. We're reminded, again, that only when life is will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. The only thing of any enduring, lasting value is the investment that we make in the lives of, of others and helping them to grow helping them to, to become like you and in our own personal growth. And so we, we ask that we would take this task seriously, that we would see it as you see it. Give us the grace to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.